But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teachings, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that, it, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters, in everything, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Thank you, Wole. Good morning, Twin Cities Church. It's good to see you all. The news has been tough lately, and uh, I found myself this week um, getting increasingly angry at a few of the stories. Um, we've got a lot of suffering due to natural disasters. Um, Puerto Rico, Houston, Florida, a lot of people died. A lot of people whose lives uh, have been changed forever. A lot of people who have lost loved ones and friends. Um, a lot of people who have to change jobs, move to a different place because they can't do business where they have been. We got the folks out in California with fires uh, destroying uh, decades of work in those vineyards. People dying. Um, but I tell you what, the uh, significant story this week that has made me angry is the uh, news about Harvey Weinstein and the uh, abuse towards women. And not that it's any worse than all of what else has been going on, but um, it's uh, maybe just a culmination. So... I want to pray because I'm going to start off talking about that a little bit because it's got a lot to do with our message out of Titus this morning. And uh, if I feel a little serious or maybe even a little angry in my tone, I apologize for that. Um, I love Jesus Christ and uh, we have hope in his gospel. Um, but this is, a, this is a serious passage today, and we live in uh, some challenging times. So let me pray. I need it, and uh, we all need it, and this world needs it. Lord God, um, as Paul said, this present evil age 
there is not much need for the gospel and for those who are called to the gospel to live according to the gospel, for there is no other hope. We see the effects of sin ravaging um, all over this planet. We've got challenges on the, the global, political, economic scale. We've got uh, natural disasters, God, which is the consequence of sin and creation. Um, it, the creation itself, your scriptures teach, uh, groans in awaiting for deliverance because it too is suffering. And it is destroying uh, us and its suffering. And so, God, we, we pray for the people um, that, whose lives have been significantly affected, for those who have lost friends and family members, for those who have lost their businesses, their homes. Father, for those who are still suffering while they wait for power, for water, for food. Um, God, uh, uh, just we, we pray that you would meet the needs. We pray, God, that you would that you would gather people, believers, unbelievers. God, you have put everyone here on this planet to work for human flourishing, and we're thankful for the ways that you meet the needs. Um, but God, we recognize that th there still is a lot of suffering and pain. And so God, we pray for uh, the suffering and pain to not be wasted. We pray that it would draw people to you, uh, to draw them into an eternal hope a hope that is founded upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his return and his establishing of a kingdom where all of this will be wiped away. And God, we pray for, we pray for, um, God, we pray for the, the, the women that have been affected by uh, Harvey Weinstein and Father, for everyone uh, who has been abused by people that use their power and their money to inflict suffering on others for their own selfish gain. God, as we saw last week, that was the purpose of elders, to protect the church from just such people. But God, I pray that, um, I pray that as we consider this text and as we consider this world, that you would strengthen us in the humility that is found in the gospel. For as we will see next week, we have to affirm with the scriptures when they say, for we were once like them. God, we all are in need, as the song we sang this morning, of the gospel, it's all we have. It's the righteousness of Christ that we put on and not our own. And so God, I, I pray that as we work through this, uh, this passage this morning, that um, you would help us to see the great hope that is found in Jesus Christ. Uh, the only hope that gives us any light in this dark world. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So, Harvey Weinstein is, if you're not aware of, what's, of the story, Harvey Weinstein is a, is a movie producer, has been a movie producer, he's not any longer, uh, who over the 30 years of his career used his position um, to, uh, to sexually harass, abuse, and rape um, a lot of women and actresses that uh, we all would be familiar with. And so it's all come out through the news over the last few weeks, and he's, he's blaming sexual assault, rape, sexual harassment, abuse of power, adultery, bribery, and other improprieties on, quote, sexual addiction. Now, uh, that's a lie. 
if sex addiction was the problem, we'd be hearing complaints from his wife, not from the seemingly dozens of women that he has abused over the three decades. Harvey Weinstein is what the Cretan prophet Epimenides, who Paul quotes in chapter one that we read last week, he is what he, Epimenides would call a liar, evil beast, and lazy glutton. And again, I'm not, I don't, I'm, I'm drawing out the news and what's going on in our world. Um, please do not interpret it as me putting myself above Harvey Weinstein or any of us uh, to be considered as better. Um, we have to recognize that aside from Jesus Christ, we are all Harvey Weinsteins. We are all uh, immoral. We are all abusive. We are all, we are all um, evil. That's what the gospel teaches us. But inside of Christ, we have the ability and the, and the power to rise above it, and he calls people to repentance. So those who have repented and have believed in Jesus Christ can thank God for his grace that he extends to all of us that enables us to live, as we will see, godly lives. But to say that it's a sex addiction is a, is a lie. It is rape, it is abuse, it is bribery. It, you have to call things what they are. Just as it was a lie when Donald Trump referred to his words describing his actions towards women as locker room talk. It detracted from the real issue. His use of power and, and wealth and prestige to abuse women. For some reason, and this is what I want to, the book of Titus is all about the use of language to disguise, to disguise deception. For some reason, humanity, we, us, get easily distracted and consumed by what Paul would call empty and deceptive speech, especially by those in positions of power. Eventually, as the war of words and endless debate rattles on and on, we eventually get to the point where we forget what we were talking about and why it is so important. Thankfully, the debate and the conversation and the murmuring and the whispering that has gone on for decades around Harvey Weinstein seems to have come to an end. But why does it take so long for it to come to an end? Uh, we as humanity get wrapped up into conversations, misnaming things, debates and arguments, and the real issues get buried, and justice is never served. And this is a very, um, for some reason, it's been this way uh, in in human cultures for millennia, we get wrapped up arguing about things. And it seems like we never can come to a, an agreement or a conclusion to the argument. And you never get anywhere. And Paul makes this point in chapter one. I wanna bring you back to chapter one. We're not gonna read it, but if you can go, if you, if you remember, so Paul is saying, uh, to Titus, I left you in Crete in order that you may establish what remains and uh, put it into order and appoint elders in every place. And the elders are there for two purposes, to, 
to instruct in sound doctrine. And sound doctrine means a doctrine that is healthy, okay? Not just accurate, all right? Doctrine that is healthy. And the health of the doctrine is shown by the health of the person. That's why there are these qualifications around elders. And so Paul says, when he's explaining why elders are needed in Crete, he quotes, he says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And then Paul says, this testimony is true. Okay, now, I didn't pick up on this last week, uh, but my research this week helped me. So, if a Cretan is saying that Cretans are always liars, and Paul says that that is true, what is true? Paul is saying that Cretans are liars always, and the Cretan has just said that Cretans are always liars. So are Cretans liars, or are Cretans truth-tellers? And so what Paul does, okay, so this, this is a paradox. This is a, a philosophical paradox that was in play in the conversations around philosophers hundreds of years before Christ came. It's called the liar paradox. And so it, it is exactly this scenario. I am always lying, and I am telling the truth in that statement. And so you go back and forth. Well, is he lying or is he telling the truth? And there are some philosophers who went round and round and round so much with these kinds of puzzles around this, this philosophical paradox. It's called the liar. It's a quote, the liar. It's this philosophical paradox. They got to the point where they would, they would be so frustrated about their inability to solve the conundrum that they would kill themselves. And so Paul is quoting the Cretan and using this, this philosophical literary device to kind of give a wink to this issue in the Cretan culture, in this philosophical culture, in our political culture. Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw something out there <laughs> and those who would be prone to debate are gonna debate this and are gonna miss the issue that I'm trying to establish. Because the issue that Paul is establishing is this. To get lost in endless debate is fruitless. If we want to see the truth of somebody's doctrine, we need to look at their lives. If we wanna see the, the sincerity of a person, we need to look at their lives. If you noticed in the apologies that came out uh, from, from Harvey Weinstein after all of this went down, he says, okay, I'm a, I'm gonna start giving a lot of money, and he's been doing this. He's been giving a lot of money to women's causes. He's gonna launch this new campaign against the NRA to get rid of his anger. And it, you know, it just kind of fell flat, thankfully. If we want people to consider us to be sincere, healthy people whose words have something to contribute to our culture, to our lives, to our families and our churches, they need to be demonstrating that type of life, a life that is trustworthy and reliable. And so last week we saw the importance of having elders whose speech was backed up by sound and healthy living. And then he tells, and he tells them, um, Titus, be sure that they are able, 
that they need to hold to the trustworthy word uh, as taught in order that they could give instruction in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. Because those who contradict it, at the end of the chapter, he says, they are unfit. Those who proclaim and those who live with unhealthy doctrine are unfit for any good work. And then chapter two, as we've seen, he begins, teach what is in accord to sound doctrine. Teach what is in accord with healthy living, which by implication, as we will see here at the end of the chapter, means that he is, he is urging instruction that is going to create people whose lives are fit for good works. Fit for good works. This theme of good works runs throughout Titus. Good works are works performed by elders in their teaching and in their protection of the church from those who would get us lost in debate and argument. That is good work that those elders do. And we're going to see that good work is now spreading to the families and to the church. And next week, we're going to see that our good works spread to the world. All right? It, it, this, the, it, our, everything that we do that contributes to human culture and society is work, whether we're paid for it or not. And Paul is, is, is working to fulfill the purposes of Jesus Christ, which is to redeem humanity and to create a people that he said, again, in this passage, to create a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's what Jesus is doing. He is, he is redeeming humanity. We are the kingdom of God if you have believed in Jesus Christ. And he is wanting to show the heavenly beings, Ephesians chapter 3. He is wanting to demonstrate the power of the gospel to create humanity to be a unified, loving, caring, hardworking people, people that are devoted to the good of all. And when Jesus can do that out of depraved immoral, adulterous people. It is, that is the power of the gospel demonstrated. A people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so good works, as we're going to see, begin here in our own personal lives. He's, he begins with older men. He's got older men, older women, younger women, young men, employees. Those are the th five groups that he addresses here in this passage. So we begin with older men. He says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. And if you look at all these together, you get the sense that older men um, are to live in such a way that the rest of the community looks up and honors them and wants to be like them. They are examples. They are um, engaged they are active in pursuing their faith. They are active in pursuing other people. They are active in, in loving and leading by example. I think the cultural dynamic that we have minimizes the importance of, of older men and, and older women. We'll get, come to that later. They, we have an emphasis in our culture on youthfulness, and that's what we aspire to. We don't aspire towards the wisdom and the stature that should come with being old if we are in Christ. Are, do we need our older people? Does our culture have a sense that 
we value and look up to and desperately need our, our older men. Paul depicts an image of a man thoroughly engaged. He is mentally acute, okay, sound in faith. He has reasoned through uh, how he lives in the world and the basis of his faith in Jesus Christ and the gospel uh, that forms it. He is engaged in his life. He is thoughtful. He is mature. And he is worthy of dignity. He controls his impulsive and emotional tendencies. You know, I, I was, as I was working through this, I was just was trying to think, um, who are the older men that I see in this world? And I don't see very many. We have a few in the church. We have our young church. Um, and I don't know really well a lot of older men, like in my neighborhood, and I see some at the, at the Y when I go, and they're hardworking. And... But I get the sense that the, cultural, the culture in Crete, when men got old, they, just came, they became uh, less and less respectable in their speech and in their actions and in their moral nature and in their... In their their moral lives. But here we see Paul, Jesus Christ, through Paul, calling older men uh, to be a, a, a dignified uh, example of strength and engagement in the, in, the, in the church community and in the world. And the confidence and strength in the gospel is represented in their Love and sacrifice for others. That's what he means by sound in love, sound in faith, and steadfastness. They are, they are living lives devoted to other people. That's what love means in the New Testament. And there is consistent perseverance in the, faces, in the face of challenge and difficulty. That's what older men are to aspire to. And the church and the world are in need of these men. Then he goes to older women. And you get the sense... And you get the sense. He says that they are to be reverent in behavior like the older men. They are not to be slanders. They are not to be slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Uh, and you get the sense that outside of Jesus Christ, what happens, at least what was happening in Crete, is that as women grow older, again, outside of Christ, um, and, and, I, and, I, and it, it, it seems like he's saying that they grow bitter. Perhaps it's because in, in undeveloped cultures, I was listening this week uh, to the radio, uh, actually it was to a song, and I can't remember, I think Alicia was playing it, um, but um, it quotes a speech that Michelle Obama gave, and this is a, a quote, I believe, from uh, an, an author that I have looked and looked and looked for, but she said that the sign of a of a civilized culture is that the men take care of its women and children. And I think in an uncivilized culture like Crete and in a culture that, you know, frankly, uh, America in a lot of ways is, um, because the women are treated as poorly as they are, they grow bitter and angry. And thus, which, that, that leads to slandering that leads to accusing, that leads to, that leads to uh, comforting oneself through alcohol and other substances. That's, uh, gluttony is the, is the unrestricted 
uh, fulfilling of sensual desires, whether it is the sexual desire, whether it is food desire, whether it is drink desire, it is a desire. Gluttony is just, I'm taking everything in to fill up all of what my body and my flesh is wanting uh, with little regard to what I need or what others need. That's what gluttony is. That's what gluttony is. And um, I think we read those things, liars, evil beasts, and gluttons, and we think, well, that's the men. He doesn't say the men of Crete are like this. He's saying all of Crete is like this. And so we have to recognize that, that women are as capable of becoming uncivilized as men are. And I think that he's describing uh, women outside of Christ when they are in a culture that is like Crete. Um, have a tendency to get um, bitter. And then their speech and their conduct is reflected in that because they have no hope. And the men have no hope. And people without hope begin to fill their needs with things that will not fill hope. And it breeds hostility and independence in women. Instead, they are to teach what is good and to be examples of what is good. They are to teach the young women to to love. To love, again, means to have a sacrificial affection for somebody. Okay, we we have to keep love. All right, love, yes, unconditional. It's unconditional. I'm committed to this person regardless of what he or she does. Okay, that's what gape love, that's what means. Uh, But within love, and we always have to remember this, there is affection, all right? If you look up any of the definitions for love, it, there is an affection to it. And so the older women are to reject becoming bitter. They are to maintain hope in Jesus Christ, as we'll see in a moment. And they are to teach younger women to also reject the bitterness and the hardness of the age. And instead of growing slanderous and bitter and, and abusive of substances like food and alcohol, they are to sacrificially love their husbands and their children. Assuming, as we all know, that probably their husbands and their children are the source of a lot of the hardship that they are experiencing. Which Paul would say then and later in 2 Timothy, as he writes to Timothy, um, women, your children will be the source of your sanctification and cleansing because they will bring you a significant amount of pain. And, and, and we are, instead of growing bitter to these things as parents, we are to embrace them and keep our hope in Jesus Christ and, and love. That's what he's instructing these women to do. To be self-controlled and pure, working at home. Okay, so this is a little bit into next week. This passage where it says, have older women teach younger women to be uh, workers at home or busy at home. When we have read that, all right, as um, evangelicals in America post-World War II, we have assumed that women are working And what has been in question is where, okay? So that's been our big conversation. Should women work outside the home or not outside the home? And You know, which is only a, a, it's a recent question because 
the economic lifestyles of most cultures prior to our own has been that the economic activity of the family, both the husband and the wife, has been around the home. All right, so we have made the wrong assumption about what Paul is assuming. We have assumed that the women are working and the debate is around where they're working. Okay, you get what I'm pointing? Paul is not assuming that the women are working. He's assuming that the women are home. Where else would they be? It's what they're doing at home. So if all of Cretans are evil beasts, liars, and lazy, then we have women who are at home being a Cretan and not working. You see? Again, we're going to explore that more next week. So you have the women of Crete not being busy, not being productive, not contributing to their families, not contributing to the culture or the world at large. If you look at Proverbs 31, which is the most definitive and, and, and detailed passage about a, what a biblical woman is, she is working hard to contribute to her family, but also to the world and culture around her. That is a biblical woman. The issue in Crete isn't that the women all want to work outside the home. The issue in Crete is that they don't want to work, period. That's the issue. Again, we're going to address it more fully next week and how all of our assumptions and prejudices around this passage, our place in our history and our culture, we're going to explore it a lot more deeper and we're going to hit all these questions, okay? Uh, please pray for me this week because I want to be wise. I've been praying, God, help me to be wise as we address this issue because it's a big one in our culture. It's a big one in our day and it has huge effects. It has huge effects on people's lives and our families um, and our economic uh, stability and our mission and, and witness in the world. The husband has the same calling. The husband has the same calling to... Take care of his kids, to teach and instruct children. Uh, the, the young woman here, yeah, there is a, a focus in her life on her husband and on her children. The husband has a focus in his life on his wife and on the children as well. And there is a season where, where moms uh, will likely be restricted to the home because of the age of the kids, economic situations, our cultural circumstances, and all these kinds of things. But he's not saying, he's not saying that women can't work. It's not saying that women have to restrict their spheres of work and their entire future to just being a wife and a mother. It's not what he's doing here, but that's how this passage has been used. So again, I'm just kind of, of, of dipping into the pool a little bit and we'll go a lot further next week. But what he's addressing, what he's addressing uh, are, is laziness. He's addressing laziness. And he says to be submissive to their own husbands. This does not mean, as has often been interpreted and has often been quoted by men who are abusive to their husbands, excuse me, abusive to their wives, and by employers that are abusive to their employees. You do not have to put up with abuse. Being submissive doesn't mean you put up with abuse. It means you align your mission with your husband's. Okay, submission. What's your husband's mission? Well, 
you know what? He's not on his own mission either anymore. If he's decided to marry and have children, Christ has called him to give up his own life and to devote himself, even give up his life, like Christ did, for the sake of his wife and his kids. The husband's mission is now to see to the care and welfare of the family. So for a wife to submit to her husband is to submit to the same cause and for them to enter into a one-minded understanding and approach to the raising of their family because that is the purpose of the teaching. You see in the book of Ephesians, all of the instructions past chapter four to the life of the church and to the families is for the purpose of unity and following Jesus and accomplishing his purposes in showing the glory and the wisdom and the beauty and the power of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That is the purpose of these teachings. And so for a wife to submit to her husband isn't to just kind of throw away her entire life uh, for a guy who's just going to come and sit on the couch and, and drink a beer and watch sports for the rest of the evening, which is the situation, okay, that existed post-World War II and what Betty Friedan wrote about in The Feminist Mystique, all of these women taking care of men who were not concerned about their wives or their children and just seemed to come home from work and... Watch television. And so this, this, this discontent grew in the women across America about what it meant to be a woman in post-World War II America. Like, is this what life is all about? Supporting a man who doesn't pay any attention to me or the kids? It's not biblical Christianity. It's American culture. Both a husband and a wife give up themselves if they decide to have a family. And it requires sacrifice and it requires commitment and both of them will give up their lives for it. And the call again to women, to wives to be submissive is to simply align themselves with the husband on a common mission for the welfare of the family and following Jesus Christ. If wives take that job away from their husbands, they will melt away in obscurity and they won't rise to the level of responsibility that they need to. Wives, you will do a great job. If, if you're working hard, you will do a great job in taking care of your kids and taking care of your family. They're, this is the only place in Scripture where, to the Cretans, where there's instruction to a mom to love her kids. It's not anywhere in the Old Testament. There's nothing in the law telling a mother to love her kids because it's just kind of generally assumed, unless you're in Crete. Crete was really bad. But to, and Michelle Obama's right, and I can't remember who she's quoting again, but uh, a civilized culture is, gonna, is going to nurture men to take responsibility of women and children rather than abusing them. And if we don't hold them to that standard and, and, and strengthen them and support them to that task of taking responsibility and of leading, they will not have a task and they will lead to abusing women and children. That's just how, that is what is happening in our culture. Young men, you know, this is a strange thing. There is one instruction given to young men in the book of Titus. 
be sensible. Some translations say be self-controlled. It's as if, if, if young men could just get to the point where they were using their minds instead of their emotional and fleshly urges, everything would be taken care of. That's, that's, that's essentially what Jesus is saying here. Young men, you have all these urges, all of these urges and desires to prove yourself, to show yourself, to be somebody, to make a name for yourself. Resist those urges Engage your mind and control yourselves. Control yourselves. And then the instructions to Titus are within this context of the instructions to younger men. And Timothy, as a younger man, is to be an example. He says, Timothy, be a model of good works. Be a model of sacrificial living. Sacrificial, a good works in this passage implies that there is a motivation. There is a motivation that is coming from an understanding of Jesus' sacrifice of himself for the good of others, which empowers us and motivates us to good works. And this is what he's saying to young men. Young men, fill your lives with service to other people. Tim, Titus, be an example of serving other people. Quit serving yourself and all of your passions. Engage your mind and see where the needs are at in this world around you and, and fill yourself being busy with those kinds of good works. Again, I recall Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 begins by King Lemuel um, being exhorted by his mother. Okay, so you have a young man who's going to be king someday. And King Lemuel's mother has found Lemuel, discovered and observed Lemuel, uh, pursuing women and drink. And she says, Lemuel, don't give yourself to women. Don't give yourselves to drink. Lift yourself up above those things. Don't give your strength to those things so that you can provide justice as a king to those who are in need of protection. That's what he's calling young men to do. Young men, don't be somebody who takes and hurts for your own selfish gain and for the fulfillment of your own desires and pleasures. Arise from that state Become a dignified man, protecting, providing for those who are in need. Tim Titus is to be a model of integrity, dignity, and sound speech. That's what he does for a living. He, he's a preacher, he's a teacher, and he is to conduct himself with, with integrity in his work, and that's what he's calling young men to do. And he gets to employees. Submit to your masters and everything, bond servants, and we don't have these types of economic arrangements uh, anymore, at least legally. We're thankful for that. Um, but in our work, we are to not work um, just uh, for our own gain 
We don't work just for lip service, okay? We, just to show that we're working hard. We work hard to work hard to be, bring profit and productivity to the people we are working for, to the companies that we are working for. We don't steal, and we're loyal. We're loyal. And so he calls us all to this, to this lifestyle, this lifestyle of good works towards others, good works towards our families, good works towards our church community. The older men and women of the church are to be examples and they are to give instruction to those who are younger and the younger are to, to, to see them as examples and strive for this calling that Christ has given us. Across the board, everybody, across the board, we are all called by Jesus Christ to, to resist the urges of being a Cretan. You know, you know, we lie to protect ourselves. That's what lying is. We, we, we don't like the truth about who or what we are or what we've done, so we lie, okay? We don't need to lie if we take on the gospel. We're no longer our sin. We are in Christ, and so those sins do not define us. So we don't have to lie when we recognize that we're in Christ, all right? Evil beasts, which means we are destructive to people around us. Evil beasts in, 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 in biblical times was, all, was always a concern uh, because the evil beasts would eat people. They would eat people and destroy people and destroy things. And so if we just let ourselves go, we will destroy the people around us, resist those urges. And again, I've already talked about what gluttony is. He says lazy gluttons. We can work hard and be lazy gluttons. Laziness when it comes to gluttony is that we are, we are resisting the hard work of denying ourselves. It's hard work to deny ourselves. We can work really hard so that we can selfishly consume everything that we work for, and that's still being a lazy glutton. We have to work hard to resist fulfilling all of our passions and desires. We all have to resist becoming Cretans. Our culture, our culture is moving towards barbarianism. Our culture is moving towards Crete. All right? We have to be strong against the tendencies that are in the world and from our own desires and our own flesh. And Paul gives a reason for all of this. He says, to live this way, that the word of God may not be reviled, in verse 5, that an opponent, may not be, that an opponent would be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us, in verse 8. And in verse 10, he says that, that we may adorn or beautify the doctrines of our Savior. Our teachings become beautiful when our lives back it up. We've got, we've got neighbors that don't agree with what we believe or think, but they've verbally expressed to us that they appreciate the beauty of our lives. Now, we don't want to hear about the gospel, but we, we think you live lives that are disciplined and beautiful. So that's our witness. Our, our witness in our emerging culture is going to be less and less our words. We need to be ready to speak with our words as, as we're instructed to by Christ. But we are increasingly... Um, we need to be increasingly emphatic on our, on our lives. And if our lives aren't worthy of the gospel in, in how Titus is describing them here, 
I think Paul would say, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> keep your mouth shut. Because it's just going to seem like you're one of these philosophers and debaters that just want to talk about good theology, but whose life is a mess. Don't dishonor God by your life that is a mess, by proclaiming to know him. That's a false teacher. He says they profess to know God, but by their works they deny him. Don't let your works deny God. And what is the motivation in this? I love this passage. For the grace of God has appeared, teaching us. In fact, it says, bringing salvation for all people, including us. We need saved. We always need saved. The gospel, he says, trains us to renounce ungodliness. It trains us to renounce worldly passions. It trains us to live self-controlled. It trains us to wait for the blessed hope, the coming of Jesus Christ. Consider the beauty of Christianity. There are all kinds of philosophies and doctrines and debates about what the good and happy and prosperous life is. But the proof is in the life. And what Paul is saying here is that if, if we can follow Jesus Christ, we are going to demonstrate a beauty that none will be able to to refute. Even our enemies are going to be silenced. If you're, if you're considering Christianity, what I want you to do here is, is for a moment, forget what you've observed in Christians, maybe. And look here to the vision. Look here to the vision that Paul is holding up. A, a people who are sacrificial in every aspect of their lives whose marriages and families are beautiful, where the older men and older women are not despised because they are perceived to be useless, but they are held up and honored and revered because they are contributing and they are reverent and they are active and engaged in the lives of the people of the community and of the world, where you have husbands and wives getting along, no infidelity. They support and they strengthen and encourage one another. And their children are respectful and obedient and hardworking. And where we collectively work hard in all of the jobs that we do and our employers and our coworkers can trust in us. And as we're going to see, our, well, our young men, holy cow, If, if the church knew the Christians as a community of people who knew how to effectively train and equip young men in this era, wow, what a witness and a testimony that would be. And we're going to see that the witness is going to continue to go out and expand even further into the world. How do we, how do we, how do we enter into gospel training? Well, renounce the deceitful desires in you renounce them don't follow them renounce them renounce the pictures of the world and its image of what success and joy and happiness is and we can only do that we can only do that if we put our hope in the life that jesus christ provides if we truly believe that he is life 
And the substance and the basis for our belief that he is life is his resurrection from the dead. He died for our sins to pay for and to cleanse us from the guilt and the shame of our sin. And he rose from the dead to prove that that in Christ there is life, the fullness of life. And he's calling us to the fullness of life as people, as people that he's created. He knows as our creator what will give us the most life. And his, in his resurrection from the dead is proof of that. That is what we've got to hold on to, Twin Cities Church, and anybody that is here listening to this message. The only path to true life is the only proven person who's resurrected from the dead. He's, he's conquered everything that destroys us. Which is proof that, okay, we can find life in him. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. It's going to be work. And these are the good works. This is our work. This is our work. Let me pray. Lord God, um, wow, what a witness and a testimony this would be in our culture. God, I pray that you would strengthen us as a church to embody what, what, what Paul is teaching here, what Jesus Christ is teaching, the beautiful teachings of Christ. I pray, God, that, that you would fill us with a, the knowledge of faith in and hope in the gospel that would really create this type of life. And God, that you would give us wisdom to to navigate this really complex world uh, for there's a lot of opportunity for debate. And we should debate a little. But God, there's a greater opportunity for lives that demonstrate your power in us and help us to live that way. In your son's name, amen.